Welcome to From the Front Porch, a conversational podcast about books, small business, and life in the South. Bit by bit, at 124 and in the clearing, along with the others, she had claimed herself. Freeing yourself was one thing. Claiming ownership of that freed self was another. Toni Morrison, beloved. I'm Annie Jones, owner of The Bookshelf, an independent bookstore in beautiful downtown Thomasville, Georgia. And this week, we're bringing back one of our favorite podcast series, Backlist Book Club. In today's episode, Hunter McClendon and I are discussing the Pulitzer Prize winning novel, Beloved, by Toni Morrison. Before we get started, I wanted to extend another reminder about our Jenny Han Summer Book Club. You may remember that Olivia, Lucy, and I first gathered over Zoom back in 2020, peak pandemic, to read the Babysitter's Club books. Then in 2021, we continued our nostalgia reading with YA Lit from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. And now this summer, we're kind of wrapping everything up by reading Jenny Han's Summer I Turned Pretty trilogy in advance of its TV adaptation later this year. You can join our summer book club by purchasing a book bundle of all three books in the trilogy. Just click or tap the link in our show notes. Our virtual meetings begin in May and Olivia, Lucy, and I cannot wait to chat with you. Now back to the show. Hi, Hunter. Hello. Oh, it's time for Backlist Book Club. I have been so excited for this. I've missed it. I have too. I think you maybe approached me about bringing it back last fall, I think mm-hmm. maybe. And do you know, when was the last time we did this? Pre-Pandy? I think the last, I'm pretty sure, I think the last backlist book club pick might have been Rebecca. Oh my gosh, that was so long ago. <laughs> I know. And did we, okay, I did want your help remembering. So if you are a new listener to From the Front Porch, Backlist Book Club is something Hunter and I did years ago, it feels like, Mm -hmm. where we read a backlist title because both of us are drawn to, although Hunter, you're kind of living a different reading life this year, but we typically (laughs) read mostly new releases. Mm -hmm. And so it was a way to kind of boost our backlist reading. But we also did a series of podcasts called Love It or Loathe It, which I still really love as a concept. Those were two different things, right? Love It or Loathe It and Backlist Book Club, or did one morph into the other? I'm pretty sure that we started we started with love it or loathe it, but then we could never just like straight out say if we loved or loathed something, which is completely you and me. That's where our Venn diagrams meet in the in the mushy middle where we were like, yeah. is or an option? Can we or it? Like, we- right, right. Which it's so funny because so like yeah, because we so we actually. It, um, Initially, it was us with uh, Rebecca Arwood, who was the manager at the time. Oh, and right. then, yeah, and then it was Emily McKenna, and who both had no problem seemingly with loving or loathing something. <laughs> yes. And we, I remember us just being shocked every time, like, how can you have such strong feelings one way or the other? I only, I can count, I think, on two fingers the books that I really loathed. And I think everything else I really did fall pretty much in the middle. Were they Walt and Perfect Days? Walt was one of them. What mm-hmm. was Perfect Days? The other one I was thinking of was Rebecca. I loathed Rebecca. I respect. I respected Rebecca, but but I just don't think I'm a gothic reader, and I respect it for what it started. You can see Rebecca's hands on like every yeah. work. Of- oh thriller lit because you read the Winters. Yes, right before. I read the Winters first, like a goob. 
and didn't didn't know the Winters was a retelling of Rebecca. I felt so (laughs) dumb. So dumb. I'm so dumb sometimes. It's okay. Let's (laughs) acknowledge. I think acknowledging when we're dumb is a really important process uh, that we should all engage in. As Beyonce said in her album Lemonade, we're going to (laughs) heal. Oh, okay. So from Beyonce to Toni Morrison, this year, as part of Backlist Book Club, you and I decided to read Pulitzer winners. Mm -hmm. And it just so happened that I, in my personal reading life, am trying to read through some of Toni Morrison's works. Last year was my Jane Austen year. This year is my Toni Morrison year. So it made sense to kind of kick off this Backlist Book Club with the Pulitzer winning Beloved. Later this year, did you know this before you read the notes? Did you and I decide on these titles together? Or did I pick them and I'm forcing you? (laughs) I knew that we were doing, I knew we were doing uh, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. Okay. And then, so we're going to doing Pilgrim at Tinker Creek later this year. And then even later this year, we're going to do Less by Andrew Greer, I believe. So I'm excited about those. So backlist, it's like backlist, but also Pulitzer reading. And that's what we're doing on the podcast Mm -hmm. this year. So, My Toni Morrison reading experience is pretty limited. I read Recitatif earlier this year, the short story, her only short story she ever published, and loved it. And now I have finished Beloved, so two for two on the quarters of the year, which I feel really good about. But my experience then with Toni Morrison is pretty limited. I read excerpts of her work in high school and college, but did not read her works in their entirety. You, though, I feel like have done all of the Toni Morrison works? Am I wrong about that? What is your Toni Morrison history? So I have read, okay, so I there's one or two that I have not read, but um, I believe I have not read Home and I have not read A Mercy, but I have read all of the others. But it's funny because I actually heard about Toni Morrison right after high school because of John Green, the YA author. Oh, well, thanks, John Green. Yeah, he did like a he did like a Christmas recommendations thing or whatever for like for just different types of books for people and uh he recommended Sula by Toni Morrison and he was like this is a book about friendship and uh my best friend was like leaving for college and I was <laughs> staying at home and I was like ooh this is perfect and then I read Sula and I was not it's funny cuz like I was thinking about this earlier I was not as I was too young and unable to fully comprehend the beauty and the brilliant construction at work in her, Mm -hmm. in her book. And, but, but since, and so I I honestly don't think, and then I, after that, I read beloved the first time, but it was not until her, I went back and read her first book, the bluest eye that I was fully able to understand exactly what she was doing. That's so interesting because as I was reading beloved, I was really disappointed. And you and I have talked about this in reading some other classics uh, over the last couple of years, but I was really disappointed that I had not read her work under the instruction of a high school English teacher or mm-hmm. a college professor. And yet I suspect that you're correct that I may not have been able to engage fully with the work as a high school student. So as much as I wish, like I kept thinking, man, I wish I had read this in high school. I can't believe I didn't read this in high school. Shame on my high school teachers. And I still mm-hmm. feel a little bit that way. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, I'm also like, maybe it's better that I met this as an adult reader and 
I have an experience of reading that I did not have in high school, even though I was an avid reader. But you're right. The construction is not always easy. And there are parts that probably high school Annie would have been discouraged by and would Mm -hmm. have been intimidated by that adult reader Annie has a little bit more stamina. Do you know what I mean? Like I have a little bit more gumption to read it that I might not have had at 16 or 17. And so maybe it's a good thing that I waited. Did you reread this in preparation for our conversation or have you reread it recently? I did reread it for a conversation. I reread part of it and I listened to part of it. Toni Morrison narrates the audiobook. <gasps> Does she? Was it beautiful? It was beautiful, but it was also so beautiful that like, and, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but like there were times where I would just feel like I'd like kind of drifted away because it was uh, just you got so lost in it. Yeah. Okay. So if people are not familiar, uh, we like to start backlist book clubs with a synopsis. And so, Hunter, I feel like you're really good at this. Do you want to give a synopsis of Beloved? Oh, I can try. Um, Beloved is um, a novel about a woman named Setha who escaped from slavery and and is now living with um, her daughter Denver in this basically haunted house. And it's the novel is basically about the way that people with trauma are living in the past and the present simultaneously. Mm. It was published in 1987. Uh, The winner of the Pulitzer, a finalist for the National Book Award. We're going to talk about that later. It's also based, this was gut-wrenching to me and new information because remember, I'm approaching this as a complete layperson. So this is based on the true story of Margaret Garner, who was a formerly enslaved woman who wound up killing one of her children to prevent them from experiencing slavery. And so you can do some research on on Margaret Garner and her her real life story, but that is who the character of Setha is based upon. I'm curious, Hunter, had you re- seen the have you seen the film adaptation of this starring Oprah Winfrey? Actually, I watched it a couple months back. So I, because this is my Toni Morrison year, I want to make sure I'm not just reading the work, but I'm also engaging with it in other ways. So I'm thinking I'm going to watch the movie, but I wondered what your impressions of the film were. I do think I will say, so it was directed by Jonathan Demme. And I think that for what, I, I think he was successful in what he was trying to do. And I actually think that it's a beautifully acted film. I think that Oprah is... I mean, like, you know, I, th- I think that sometimes people dismiss her acting ability, mm-hmm. but to me, her performance in that is one of the best performances I have seen. I think it's one of the best performances of that decade, and it is mm. just gorgeous. And um, and I don't, I, I have, like, some flaw. I think it's a flawed film, but I do think that it was um, probably the best that they could do to capture the film, or to, cap- to capture the story. Because, I mean, this is a challenging book to adapt, Yes, I, that's what I was thinking. That's why I was kind of curious because I thought, gosh, there's some, there, not only, I'm not, I'm not just talking about the plot driven scenes mm-hmm. that are potentially graphic or traumatic, but I'm also just talking about a lot of the book is about inner work and inner, yeah. your inner life. And that is hard to portray in film or on television. And so I was curious how that came across. I do think, yeah, I do think that it does a really, as good of a job as it can to, um, to adapt it. I will say though, this, this is something that I think that um, I, as I was rereading this, I was like, wow, you can really tell that this is a book that was made to be a book, not a book that was written uh, in the hopes of mm. it being adapted into a television show. Oh, which we do see a lot now, I think. Yeah. So 
One of my, when I kind of did some research in preparation for today's episode, one of the things that Toni Morrison said upon receiving, I believe it was, was a war, an award based on Publishers Weekly or something like that. But she gave this really interesting um, and thought-provoking quote that um, I'm sure the year was around 1987 or 1988. She said, there is no suitable memorial or plaque or wreath or wall or park or skyscraper honoring the memory of the human beings forced into slavery and brought to the United States. There's no small bench by the road. And because such a place doesn't exist, the book had to. And the book dedication is to 60 million and more, Mm -hmm. uh, which is, I think is a really beautiful, sparse, uh, again, thought provoking way to kind of introduce the whole, the whole novel. And I'm curious, you mentioned in your synopsis, it's a, so it's a ghost story, maybe at first glance, but this really is a book about trauma and particularly the trauma of enslavement and what it means to each of these characters. And, and Setha is the primary character, but we get lots of really interesting characters and kind of how they all are grappling with being formerly enslaved and what that looks like. And so I'm wondering, how do you think Beloved stands as this memorial to to the enslaved do you think it functions as a memorial and I've, I've never thought about books functioning as memorials but i i love that concept and i think i especially love it as somebody who really does love an actual memorial like i love jordan and i love we're, we're very nerdy like i love visiting yeah. historic sites i love doing research i love standing at the foot of a statue and reading about why it's there and yet as a reader, to hear Toni Morrison describe this book in this way, I thought was really profound and, and made me look at it a little bit differently. Well, yeah. And I think it's funny because I think a lot about how some, there was a review of Beloved um, early on that referred to it as a novel as a social document. Hmm. Um, in the way that, in the way that, you know, books like Anna Karenina were, where it really is kind of like, it's, because I, I, I do, th- it's interesting. I'm th- I think I've been thinking a lot about. I think it is. I think the, the answer to your question is yes. But mm-hmm. I think that why this book succeeds so well is because Toni Morrison does. She's she's not just looking at um, people problems. She she is under she understood the this like the systemic yes. issues, and yeah. that's being grappled with throughout the novel. And it should be noted, it's being grappled with throughout the novel in not just a thought-provoking way, that's the word that I keep using, that's the phrase that I keep using, but also in a really beautifully wrought way. And so Mm -hmm. not only does it function, yes, as a memorial, as it sounds like was one of her intents, but it also just functions as a really profound work of literature. Like anytime I kept thinking, oh, like, because it has such deep crucial themes, right? And so, Mm -hmm. and, you know, because I was thinking about this in preparation for a conversation, I was thinking, okay, what are Hunter and I going to talk about? What is Toni Morrison trying to say? But you're also very much enraptured by the story. Like you're very much wrapped up in the story. So sometimes you read a work of literature and you think, oh, this is of a moment or about a movement or about a, or about a historic, historical, time period but this to me it definitely does those things but it also is a really well-told well-crafted story i think it's hard to find a book that's both yeah well it's so funny because i so uh i was i recently wrote about the first black author to win the national book award ralph ellison's the invisible man and i and i was thinking a lot about how and this is because I was tied into Beloved, because I was thinking a lot about how a lot of the re- initial reviews for a lot, a lot of um, 
work by Black authors in in the 50s and before, really, like, white critics tended to criticize that they were... um, that they were like writing in protest in a lot of ways. Mm. And the praise for Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man didn't really acknowledge the fact that it was doing the same thing, but it was just, it, it really was, he chose to really like let the art elevate it in a lot of different ways. And, mm. but I, but I do think that, um, I do think that the white gaze was kind of, was, it, there was an influence there that, that can't be denied. But I think Toni Morrison really was one of the first writers who I maybe had been given maybe had was was challenged the the establishment enough to say i'm going to create something that is is a is a work of art but it is also going to be a social and political statement as well Mm. So Setha is the main character. She lives at this house with her daughter denver and it is as you said haunted and Mm -hmm. The ghost of we we come to realize it takes um it doesn't take a long time but I think about maybe the halfway point I think almost exactly the halfway point is when we really get we really understand where the ghost has come from we really understand mm-hmm. who beloved the ghost is it's a really starkly drawn scene. But leading up to that, we're kind of are left to wonder who is this ghost? Like who is this person? And and it, we come to realize it's it's Setha's daughter um, who she killed trying to prevent. She tried to kill all of her children, but only succeeded mm-hmm. in killing one daughter to prevent her from becoming enslaved. And based on this true story, like we talked about throughout the book, then beloved looms large. And I love how Toni Morrison, like at first beloved is kind of this small entity and like you can feel her presence in the house, but Mm -hmm. as the book continues, she grows larger and she becomes more fleshed out and she becomes, ultimately she becomes a pregnant woman is her, Mm -hmm. is how this ghost presents itself. But I wondered, especially you've read the book multiple times now. So I did some reading into, of course, how this could be interpreted because I, I'm not doing this with the help of an English professor. So I'm kind of just reading, (laughs) reading multiple views, but really boils down to, is this a ghost story? Do you interpret, does the reader interpret beloved as a true ghost figure in the life of Setha? Or is this a figurative ghost? Or is it a literal person who shows up one reviewer I read um, or one, one critic perhaps uh, interpreted it as it's a young African-American woman who doesn't know who her parents are. And Setha just mistakes her, but she's a literal person. She's not a ghost. She's a literal person. Mm-hmm. And Setha simply mistakes her for her daughter. And so I'm curious which way you interpret it and does it affect the reading? Is it one of those things? <laughs> this is going to sound silly, uh, but but if you grow up a, a Christian and you read the Bible and you have to decide you know, am I going to read this literally (laughs) or am I going to interpret some of these things as figurative or poetry? And does it ultimately affect my belief? You know, not really. And so I'm curious, does it matter whether beloved is a ghost or a person? Um, How did you interpret this really to be the, the main character of the story? Well, it's funny because um, rereading it, I was thinking to myself because because I I remember thinking, is she is she a ghost or is she real? And I think that, especially upon rereading, you can kind of see that there's arguments that you can be made both ways. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. there's there's no clear there's not a clear enough distinction, and I think that's intentional. But I think that either way, it's kind of you know really like whether or not 
beloved as actually ghost or not is is almost beside the point because mm-hmm. this is a book that is about a haunting of a different kind, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 And and I say beloved is the main character. She's really not. The, the story is Setha's. In some ways, the story is Denver's. Yeah. I, I think Denver is just a really interesting character. So the, the story does not necessarily belong to beloved. She does loom large throughout the novel. But I, as a, as a first-time reader, certainly read this as a ghost story in a way. Mm-hmm. Like, I definitely read this as a ghost story, but not in the traditional like Shirley Jackson of it all. You know what I mean? Like that's not the way I'm reading it. I'm reading it as, yes, as trauma that lives inside your home and that, and that doesn't go away. Which also like, and you know, I talked about, like I talked a lot about, I've, I feel like I have her, the structure and form of uh, Morrison's work, but I think that what I find so impressive, like, and it just to the point where I'm like, I'm just envious of the talent really is that, you can tell that this is a person who has a vast knowledge of genre and of form and how it works and like is really utilizing it to her, her strength. I mean, she, she is like, she is just taking all of this and using it to her full advantage. Hmm. Do you know, I'm sure you probably do. What, uh, what book number is beloved? Like how many was this? What- this was her fifth book fifth book you could Mm -hmm. just tell she's a real master of her craft at this point like it'll be interesting for me to maybe go back and and read some others as i as i'm hoping to do this year but this one i just kept reading and kept thinking even towards the end we get these really um gosh striking poetic chapters toward the end where beloved and sessa are really fighting for who who is going to it's almost like who is going to survive. There are these great lines like I am beloved, beloved is me, or I am beloved, beloved is mine. And those, those are written so differently from the rest of the book. And yet mm-hmm. Morrison somehow makes it completely make sense. It does not feel disjointed from the rest of the book. Like just, I kept reading thinking, gosh, how is it that all of this flows together so, so beautifully even though there are parts of the book that really do read so differently from others. Well, I think, and that's the thing too, I think that, I think a really good way to think about it is that, uh, you know, there are like, there are pop songs and pop songs have like a very specific structure that's all very similar. And I think that a lot of like beach reads kind of fall into that very similar structure. Mm. And then you have these, I think about like what uh, Kate, um, who used to work at the bookstore. Storhoff, Kate Storhoff. Yes. Who, um, you know, she was, she was, uh, she got her PhD in music. I think musicology, yeah. Musicology. And so the stuff that she would listen to, she would listen to, um, what are the things? You know, instruments, sound, music. Or- orchestras? Orchestras. Jazz, that, she would listen to pieces? <laughs> she would listen to like, you know, these, these like, these grand pieces, but like those pieces were, I mean... I mean, they range. I th- there's that one uh, that you remember the dance, the the little women dance scene that that oh, music that's playing. Yeah, that music is so beautiful, but it's like it kind of like takes a lot. It takes you on a wild ride. Yes, and I think that 
you know, like we have like these like pop song beach reads, which are really great and fun. But then we also have Toni Morrison and her mm-hmm. work is like these great symphonies that are like truly yes. masterful, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. That's a great comparison because there is something to be said for the pop song, right? We all like right. listening to pop songs, but you can't take away from the complexity of a symphony and mm-hmm. from from the real mastery of language you have to have to be an author like Toni Morrison. You know, one of the big, I don't know that it's an overarching theme, but it's certainly a word that comes up a lot and it's striking because it is not a word. I Did Toni Morrison invent this word? I Like, it's the concept of rememory and mm-hmm. this idea about looking back to the past or ignoring the past or, or growing from the past. And then I also kind of wanted to explore the ways in which I, so a few reviews that I read or a few um, critics that I read were trying to grapple with, is this novel graphic? Is it traumatic? What makes it one way or the other? And I will tell you that I knew very little going into this book. I, I'm not sure I knew anything at all. I really did approach it in the Hunter McClendon way where I was like, I'm not <laughs> reading anything about this book. Mm-hmm. And so when when you realize who Beloved is and you realize Setha committed this really violent, gruesome, horrific act, by all accounts, this horrific act. And that act really does come at a climactic moment in the book. Like I said, you kind of learn about it almost through the halfway point. And and yet that violent moment is not the center of the book to me. And so I finished it not really thinking about the violence or the graphic nature of it, but I really left thinking, oh, this is a book about, about the mind and about memory and mm-hmm. about, about what takes up space in our hearts and in our brains. Like that's what I left feeling. I really didn't leave feeling, although it's objectively, yes, violent. I didn't leave feeling like it was gratuitous or because we're going to talk too about kind of the legacy of this book and this book has been banned. It's one of the most banned books, I think, um, over the last several decades. And anyway, and it's banned for multiple reasons, but one of them is for kind of graphic violence. And I just finished it thinking, yes, it, it is violent. And like, would my very sensitive mom like to read this? No, I'm not sure that she would. And yet I didn't leave feeling weighed down by the weight of that violent act, I, I really left thinking, like you said, this is about a haunting of a different kind. Yeah. Well, and also it's so funny because I think I remember the first time I read it, I kind of missed what happened because it's, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really buried in the language and she, and Toni Morrison said that she felt like she had to do that. It's like, it's it, the way that it's written, it's almost like it, it really does take you a minute to kind of like process it all. Yeah, you have to it's not, it is not the kind of books we are used to reading or I am used to reading, right? Like mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of literature, modern literature, for better or worse, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, but it is very much kind of spelled out for you. Mm-hmm. And as you and I have read some classics over the last couple of years, there are some things that are so subtle that it takes me multiple readings to even understand what just happened. And yeah. This is certainly one of those things where it is a violent act, but it takes you a minute to understand. Like, I even think I was reading it today, and then all of a sudden I was like, oh, gosh. Like, like I don't think I fully comprehended what I was reading because it is so subtle. Yeah. It's just, I don't know. It's something that I, I, I just can't stop thinking about 
I can't stop thinking about how she does it. And also, it's so interesting, too, because I keep thinking about how that act and, and all of the other events, going back to the, just the structure of the book, you know, like, it's it's so brilliant how she, you know, she's changing tenses and she's changing perspectives, and the shape of the novel informs the way we engage with it. And the past and the present timelines are constantly recontextualizing each other and making yes. us reconsider everything we know. Yes. Which, which also then begs the question, I think, whose story is it? Because mm-hmm. the first part of the novel to me is very much baby Suggs story. Uh, mm-hmm. That is, that is the character that I immediately was drawn to. She's the character I immediately fell in love with. I fell in love with her sermons in the clearing. Like I loved her as a character the middle part feels like a fight between Setha and Beloved. But then by the end, I finished it and thought, well, I think that was Denver's story. I think that was Denver's. So I'm curious yeah. what you think. Well, what I find really interesting is, it's funny you say that, because I agree. But what it makes me think about is how there's this focus on generations, right? And mm-hmm. and I think that Setha is a really is a really great example of how sometimes like trauma can be so deeply embedded into your person that you truly, you, you, I once described, I once was talking about a little life and everyone was, a lot of people argued with me about um, how the character of Jude, everyone kind of, everyone is like in his orbit and no one can kind of like grow in a way to forward mm. or back. Like the, you know, and I said, I was like, it's because when you are, when you are in a, when you're in this like orbit of trauma, you can't, you just, you truly just cannot grow. Like you, you cannot move past that trauma at a certain point. And I think that Den, you know, Denver does, Denver has to move on and she, and it kind of feels almost like symbolic of her being this generation who is trying their best to move past or, or, yes. or move on in some way. She's in a very different position than her mother ever was. Yes. And and it and it's really to Setha's credit that Denver can do that. It's almost yes. like Setha is bearing the weight so Denver doesn't have to. And that's not right. fully true, right? I mean, Denver has her own burden to bear, mm-hmm. but Denver's actions are so different from her mother's and I think that's partly because Setha is fighting that ghost yeah. for Denver. Well, and that's the thing too, you know, I keep thinking about, I think a lot about the ways that, um, the ways that people, especially children of parents who, who come from trauma and how a lot of, you see it a lot on Twitter where people are like, well, if I had gone through this, then I would have done this differently, but you weren't there to experience that. So Mm -hmm. you don't really, you don't really have the full context to understand what you would have done. You want even, which I think this is a credit to Toni Morrison, right? Like I didn't even finish the book Mad at Setha, right? Like you're right. not mad. Like you really think, well, what else was Setha supposed to do? What uh, yeah. you know, the the trauma. In fact, I think it's a credit that by the end of the book, Setha has a person she's willing to kind of get in her brain who can tell her. Beloved isn't the best part of you. Beloved isn't the most important part of you. You're the most important part of you, which I thought was just a really lovely way to close almost Setha's trauma cycle. Like it felt like to have somebody look at her and tell her, um, no, you're the best part of you. Yourself is the best part of you. And you lived and you, and you survived and, and here's what resilience looks like. And here's what, um, you know, I think, this act of rememory is both necessary and 
it's necessary, but it also re-traumatizes you, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that that plays a part in her character development. It is so funny that you said that about like, cause I, cause I remember both, both the first time I read it and this time, I know that there are people in the book who truly rightfully, I guess, question, you know, like how could, how could you commit mm-hmm. such a, such an act? But I never, I, I never questioned, I never questioned mm-hmm. it because I, I did understand. I mean, I, I'm not saying that it's like, I'm not saying it's like the right or wrong decision, but I think that I can just, I think when you have a choice between, you know, like hoping that your child could somehow mm-hmm. escape or knowing for sure that they'll never have to live through the trauma that you lived through, like you're going to mm-hmm. choose. And, to, and the thing is, is that, and I think that the ending, you know, like when you said that about that, Setha truly is kind of like, she's holding things down in a way for Denver to kind of move forward. Yes. Like that's true to her character because that's basically what she was trying to, she was doing everything yes. she could to like stop her children from having to suffer. It's incredibly maternal. It's incredibly mm-hmm. maternal. The book very much is about motherhood in all of its forms. Uh, one of the most oddly touching scenes to me is toward the end of the book, Beloved has kind of overtaken the house and Denver goes and begs the black community who they are living kind of removed from because their house mm-hmm. is kind of notoriously this haunted house. And so Denver takes it upon herself to visit um, some members of the black community, particularly one of my favorite characters, Stamp Paid. And she kind of begs begs for help. And there's this really, I, I can't wait to watch it unfold on screen because there is this one rather cinematic moment in the book where Toni Morrison writes about all the black women coming and like meeting up on the road and all coming together to exercise the house mm-hmm. and to exercise the home. And it really is a bookend to me to mo- a moment at the beginning of the novel where baby Suggs is having like an outdoor church service yes. and all the women are crying and dancing together. And so there, this is very much a book about, about maternal instinct and about, I think black community and, and those two scenes in particular. And I love how one starts the novel and one kind of ends the novel. Um, it's a, it's a matriarchal story. It is. Yeah, that is it. Well, yeah. <clears throat> and I think you said, or you didn't say it here, but you've put it in the notes about how this is a, this is a book that does not prioritize the male gaze. Yes. Or, or the white gaze. Like, right. you know, for all that I love and espouse about To Kill a Mockingbird, right? That book is a white mm-hmm. that book is a white book. That book is a right. white story about, in part, black trauma. This mm-hmm. is a book where the black voices are centered and the white characters barely graze the page, right? You you get a brief mm-hmm. glimpse of this character named Amy. Who may be redeemed, Little Women's Amy for me? I'm not sure, <laughs> uh, but but you get this this character named Amy, um, and then you get um, the plantation owning family of Sweet Home and I believe in Kentucky, school teacher who's just a obviously horrific villainous character. But you really don't get this story is not about white the white gays or white people or white voices, and it's really not about male voices either. We get. Um, like I said, we get stamp paid. Um, is it Paul D? We get like a group of Pauls, which I mm-hmm. I really loved that group of characters, but they're certainly minor. And even Setha's husband, um, how is it pronounced in the audiobook? Is it Hallie? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So you, 
you so you get Hallie, but Hallie is an interesting contrasting Hallie and Setha is I think pretty interesting because Setha does survive her trauma. Now her trauma mm-hmm. has impacted her and has eaten her up and has taken hold of her house. But Hallie doesn't my understanding is, and it is quite subtle. I really did have to figure out what happened to how, in fact, I think my original notes to you, it were like, what happened to him? I, I, I never could figure out. And then I did some reading and, and you find out that he has succumbed. He succumbs to madness mm-hmm. because the trauma is too much. He's witnessed such violence against his wife and against his family and he cannot take it. And, and that broke my heart because he's such a strong character. He bought his mother out of slavery, but he, the trauma comes for him too. And I, I think that's an interesting con- contrast as well. But the story is not Hallie's. The story is is Setha's and Baby Suggs and Denver's and Beloved's. It's it's not. It does not belong to the men in this story. Yeah. Uh, and like, I just keep thinking about the writing. Like, it, it, this is this truly is like, it's one of the best written books. I think. I can't believe I'm so mad. At, <laughs> I'm so mad. I never read it. I like. I just. I'm grateful. I'm. I'm very grateful that I came to it when I came to it. But I. I am a little mad that for for some reason or another, and perhaps it is um, the white spaces I inhabit, but this was not a book that was put in my hands. Mm-hmm. It wasn't. It just was not put in my hands. And I read it now and I think, well, this should be one of the great American novels, shouldn't it? Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. It's so funny, too, because I think a lot about... Um... I really do think it is, but I think it's one of those that like it often gets overlooked because actually I read like a really, so like I actually read a really uh, terrible review of this. Um, it, it was, it was talking about, it was talking about this, book, but it also, it, it was a recent review and it was also referencing the underground railroad. And it was talking mm-hmm. about um, what is, it said, why, like it was talking about uh, the quote unquote slave narrative. And I thought to myself, you know, when we, there, there's like one, I don't think of either of them a, as that at all. I, I think that's, I wouldn't. That's I certainly a, would not. I honestly wouldn't qualify either one, but I really wouldn't qualify right. this as that at all. No, and so I thought that was such a weird, a weird description because even then, uh, I think that we have this idea of like of what what that looks like. But I think that what we're seeing is we're seeing we're seeing black authors write historical novels that mm-hmm. take place in their history. Mm-hmm. And that and, and that and includes, owning and owning that history and telling yeah. it themselves, and yeah. and that's the thing, right? Yeah, and, and prioritizing the actual stories and not doing what other stories have done about like of of putting even even this book that is about trauma in a lot of ways. It's not about trauma in the way that white people have written black characters to mm-hmm. be traumatized. You know, this is this is doing something totally different. And I think um, I don't know, but I, I think that. Toni Morrison, she does such a beautiful job just in general. And you'll see more too when you read, I think, I think that she, she inhabits a history in a way that, that just really was so necessary to, to the literary canon and is so influential. And, and I don't, I don't think that I can understand why she won the Nobel prize because I do not think that our literary, our landscape of literature would look the same without her today. Speaking of the literary landscape, one of the things you are doing this year is reading your way through the National Book Award finalists. Mm -hmm. And obviously, I knew this was a Pulitzer winner, but I was stunned and yet not so stunned to see that that this book was a National Book Award finalist in 1987, but it was not the winner. And then I, I went and I was like, well, who was the winner? And I looked it up and the name, I'm so sorry, the name has already 
Paco's uh, story. That's right. Which is a, um, if I'm not mistaken, a Vietnam War story. Yeah, is that right? Yes. And (laughs) I cannot wait to hear you kind of deep dive uh, this year in the National Book Award history. But I wondered, you have discussed a little bit in your in your newsletters that you've been writing the Mm -hmm. Pulitzer versus the National Book Award and kind of what the definitions of the two are. Can you go into that a little bit? Yeah. So the National Book Award is strictly looking for the best books written by American authors each year. Um, but there's no there's no preference for uh, for genre or for subject matter um, as long as it is like well written. Whereas the Pulitzer is about the best. It's they're t- they're basically looking for the great American novel. That was the original definition. It has since okay. like formed into like uh, books dealing with American life. Okay. But, but yeah, so it's actually really interesting though, because, uh, Toni Morrison was only a finalist for two books. One was Sula and the other was, uh, Beloved. And after she lost the National Book Award for Beloved, I mean, it was kind of like a big deal because everyone just thought she, she's so deserving for it, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, and then there was actually an open letter that was written by over 40, uh, black critics and writers that were you know, kind of saying like, hey, like she deserves acknowledgement. And then when she did win the Pulitzer, she actually said in a New York Times interview, she said that she had no doubt about the value of the book and that it was really worth serious recognition. But I had some dark thoughts about whether the book's merits would be allowed to be the only consideration of the Pulitzer committee. The book had begun to take on a responsibility, an extra literary responsibility that it was never designed for. Mm. And I think that she, you know, and I, and I, and it made me think a lot about how you know, I, I think that initially in the first in the first two decades, two or three decades of the National Book Award, they did pick some challenging reads that the Pulitzer Committee, the Pulitzer Committee tended to like skew towards the establishment. So they always picked like these writers who are already renowned. Okay. Um, but I do think, but I, I don't know, I th- there's a lot of complicated history there. Uh, and I do think it's sad that, uh, but also it's funny because a lot of Nobel Prize winners never won the National Book Award, but they did win the Pulitzer. That is so interesting to me because based on the criteria you're describing, I mean, obviously I would I would argue that she was deserving and her work was deserving of both, right? The Pulitzer right. And, and the National Book Award. But it seems so very obvious that it would be a National Book Award winner to me. It, oh, I completely it, agree. Just it feel because as I said to you not five minutes ago, like it feels like the great American novel to me. And it's interesting that Toni Morrison references kind of the weight the book was forced to bear, which I think you and I kind of talked about at the beginning because it's dealing with these systemic issues. But but at its heart, it's also just a really well written story, and and it somehow does both of these things. But as a result, perhaps she was right had to bear the weight that it was never really intended to have to bear. Well, yeah, but I even think, you know, I think it's funny, right? Because I think that when she says that, I think it more so probably means she probably, I I can't speak for her, but it it seemed to me that she probably meant more along the lines of uh, the new weight was that it was going to be used in almost as like an educational device for white people or what, you know what I mean? Versus, Versus what you talked about earlier with, you know, with it really being for Black readers. Yeah. So I'm curious, you and I do a lot of, that. part of the reason we do Backlist Book Club is because you and I do a lot of modern new release reading. And so mm-hmm. I wondered, I immediately, and in, even in past issues when we've done, when we did something like <laughs> Rebecca, y- you can see immediately, like I immediately thought, oh my gosh, like I've read things recently 
that mm-hmm. now I see were very much inspired to or paying homage to Toni Morrison and Beloved. Um, so the two I wanted to mention are This Here Flesh, which is a beautiful work of nonfiction, and uh, Call Baby, which did you read that book? I did, yeah. Yeah. And it to me, the writing very much reminds me because it, it kind of grapples, just like Beloved kind of grapples with this ghost story element. Mm-hmm. Call Baby has this kind of magical almost magical realism kind of element. So those two books were the ones that immediately came fi- uh, to mind for me. What about for you? The book that really came um, to mind immediately was actually The Fifth Season by N.K. Jemison, Okay. Um, which is a fantasy type yeah. book. It's part of a trilogy, which is very outside of my, uh, my usual read, but there is, um, there is an act of violence against a child for their own protection and there is a lot of really interesting um, nav- the way the way that it's navigating discussions around um, around identity and specifically uh, it's it's it, and, and and race, but just done in a very different way because of the the world. But I could see so much of that, and even the writing is it, I can see her influence so heavily from especially beloved in this. I wanted to mention a kind of sort of resource. So I'm going to be continuing to read Toni Morrison's works. I think unless you have an expert opinion, I am kind of drawn to the story of Sula. Mm -hmm. uh, And that's the one I'm tempted to read next. But do you have, do you have a recommendation for what I should follow this up with? So I, let's, let me think. I, okay. I do love Sula. I will tell you now, my personal favorite is Song of Solomon. Okay. I think that Song of Solomon and The Bluest Eye were, I think they are the most accessible reads. Okay. I will also just tell you, oh, and I think God Help the Child is accessible. Um, mm-hmm. But I will tell you now, Paradise, I will tell everyone who's listening, Paradise, I found it very difficult. Um, okay. I need I need help with that one. I don't, I was about to say, I don't even think I bought that one. So at the beginning of the year, I bought four books from a bookstore in Auburn, Alabama. Mm. And... Beloved was one. Sula was one. Was Jazz mm-hmm. one? And Song of Solomon was one. I think those yeah. were the four I bought. Though I'm open because I read Recitative and that one I hadn't even originally intended to read. So I'm so glad I did. But I did want to mention there's an Instagram account called um, Books with, I believe it's Books with Raya, R-A-I-A. And she has this great infographic. She posted it not too long ago, so you should be able to find it. But it's this great infographic about Toni Morrison. And she kind of tells which one to read if you're looking for a certain type of book. Mm-hmm. And so I, fa- I found that to be helpful. And so I wanted to point out that Instagram account um, because I found I found that to be helpful in my own kind of planning out of my Toni Morrison year. Okay, Hunter, any final thoughts on Beloved? Just that it's good, yo. <laughs> I do think it is so... If you are reticent, maybe because... Maybe you're my mom and you're a sensitive reader. You know, I do think this is obviously dealing with some really intense, tough subject matter. But if you're not a sensitive reader and you're like me and you just had never encountered Toni Morrison's works before, I do think this is a fine starting point. Like this was not, there were parts of it where the language is perhaps, as Hunter put it, like not quite as accessible. But I think if you're somebody who spends a lot of your time with books, you're completely capable of kind of embracing the language and and getting lost in, in the in the beauty that is this book. I really, I highly recommend it. I, I, if we were doing love it or loathe it, this would be a love. Oh, same. (laughs) 
This week, what I am reading is brought to you by the 101st Annual Rose Show and Festival here in Thomasville, Georgia. Once the calendar flips to April, we know that we have a lot going on in downtown Thomasville. Already this month, we have celebrated First Friday. We have been down at Cascades Park in nearby Tallahassee for the Word of South Literary Festival. And we have celebrated Due South, a music festival here in our own community. So April is the perfect time to come visit Thomasville for whatever celebration that you see on your calendar, whether it is Rose Show or Indie Books store day. There really is kind of something for everybody leading up to the events of Rose Show and Festival. Several of our favorite restaurants are already planning their special menus and their commemorative drinks for the festival. And I have already seen a preview of some of our own events going on in the downtown area for Rose Show. So if you missed First Friday or if you missed Word of South or Do South, never fear. You have time to plan your Rose Show vacation. There are lots of hotels and Airbnbs that still have room, and I would love to see you at Rose Show. That is April 23rd in beautiful downtown Thomasville, Georgia. This week, I'm reading Memphis by Tara M. Stringfellow. Hunter, what are you reading? I'm reading Tracy Flick Can't Win by Tom Parada. Thank you, Hunter, for joining us on today's episode. And thank you again to our sponsor, the 101st Annual Rose Show and Festival here in Thomasville, Georgia. If you want to come for the weekend and experience the flowers, fun, food, and shopping in beautiful Thomasville, plan your visit at thomasvillega.com. From the Front Porch is a weekly podcast production of The Bookshelf, an independent bookstore in Thomasville, Georgia. You can follow The Bookshelf's daily happenings on Instagram at bookshelfteville, and all the books from today's episode can be purchased online through our store website, bookshelfthomasville.com. A full transcript of today's episode can be found at fromthefrontporchpodcast.com. Special thanks to Studio D Podcast Production for production of From the Front Porch and for our theme music, which sets the perfect warm and friendly tone for our Thursday conversations. Our executive producers of today's episode are Donna Hetchler, Angie Erickson, Cammie Tidwell, Chantal Carls, Nicole Marcy, Wendy Jenkins, Lori Johnson, Kate Johnston-Tucker. Thank you all for your support of From the Front Porch. If you'd like to support From the Front Porch, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Your input helps us make the show even better and reach new listeners. All you have to do is open up the podcast app on your phone, look for From the Front Porch, scroll down until you see write a review and tell us what you think. Or if you're so inclined, you can support us over on Patreon, where we have three levels of support, Front Porch Friends, Book Club Companions, and Bookshelf Benefactors. Each level has an amazing number of benefits like bonus content, access to live events, discounts, and giveaways. Just go to patreon.com forward slash from the front porch. We're so grateful for you, and we look forward to meeting back here next week.